This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 2, Chapter 6 Part 1 of 3 I think it is the weakness of mine eyes that shapes this monstrous apparition. It comes upon me. Julius Caesar Daylight dispelled from Emily's mind the glooms of superstition, but not those of apprehension. The Count Morano was the first image that occurred to her waking thoughts, and then came a train of anticipated evils which she could neither conquer nor avoid. She rose, and to relieve her mind from the busy ideas that tormented it, compelled herself to notice external objects. From her casement she looked out upon the wild grandeur of the scene, closed nearly on all sides by alpine steeps, whose tops, peering over each other, faded from the eye in misty hues, while the promontories below were dark with woods that swept down to their base and stretched along the narrow valleys. The rich pomp of these woods was particularly delightful to Emily, as she viewed with astonishment the fortifications of the castle spreading along a vast extent of rock, and now partly in decay, the grandeur of the ramparts below, and the towers and battlements and various features of the fabric above. From these her sight wandered over the cliffs and woods into the valley, along which foamed a broad and rapid stream, seen falling among the crags of an opposite mountain, now flashing in the sunbeams, and now shadowed by overarching pines, till it was entirely concealed by their thick foliage. Again it burst from beneath this darkness in one broad sheet of foam, and fell thundering into the vale. Nearer, towards the west, opened the mountain vista, which Emily had viewed with such sublime emotion on her approach to the castle. A thin, dusky vapor, that rose from the valley overspread its features with a sweet obscurity. As this ascended and caught the sunbeams, it kindled into a crimson tint and touched with exquisite beauty the woods and cliffs over which it passed to the summit of the mountains. Then, as the veil drew up, it was delightful to watch the gleaming objects that progressively disclosed themselves in the valley. The green turf, dark woods, little rocky recesses, a few peasants' huts, the foaming stream, the herd of cattle, and various images of pastoral beauty. Then the pine forest brightened, and then the broad breast of the mountains, till, at length, the mist settled round their summit, touching them with a ruddy glow. The features of the vista now appeared distinctly, and the broad, deep shadows that fell from the lower cliffs gave strong effect to the streaming splendor above, while the mountains, gradually sinking in the perspective, appeared to shelve into the Adriatic Sea, for such Emily imagined to be the gleam of bluish light that terminated the view. Thus she endeavored to amuse her fancy, and was not unsuccessful. The breezy freshness of the morning, too, revived her. She raised her thoughts in prayer, which she felt always most disposed to do when viewing the sublimity of nature, and her mind recovered its strength. 
When she turned to the casement, her eyes glanced upon the door she had so carefully guarded on the preceding night, and she now determined to examine whither it led. But, on advancing to remove the chairs, she perceived that they were already moved a little away. Her surprise cannot be easily imagined when, in the next minute, she perceived that the door was fastened. She felt as if she had seen an apparition. The door of the corridor was locked as she had left it, but this door, which could be secured only on the outside, must have been bolted during the night. She became seriously uneasy at the thought of sleeping again in a chamber thus liable to intrusion, so remote, too, as it was from the family, and she determined to mention the circumstance to Madame Montoni and to request a change. After some perplexity, she found her way into the great hall and to the room which she had left on the preceding night where breakfast was spread and her aunt was alone, for Montoni had been walking over the environs of the castle, examining the condition of its fortifications and talking for some time with Carlo. Emily observed that her aunt had been weeping, and her heart softened towards her with an affection that showed itself in her manner, rather than in words, while she carefully avoided the appearance of having noticed that she was unhappy. She seized the opportunity of Montoni's absence to mention the circumstance of the door, and to request that she might be allowed another apartment, and to inquire again concerning the occasion of their sudden journey. On the first subject, her aunt referred her to Montoni, positively refusing to interfere in the affair. On the last, she professed utter ignorance. Emily, then, with a wish of making her aunt more reconciled to her situation, praised the grandeur of the castle and the surrounding scenery, and endeavored to soften every unpleasing circumstance attending it. But, though misfortune had somewhat conquered the aspiration of Madame Montoni's temper, and by increasing her cares for herself, had taught her to feel in some degree for others, the capricious rule of love, which a nature had planted and habit had nourished in her heart, was not subdued. She could not now deny herself the gratification of tyrannizing over the innocent and helpless Emily, by attempting to ridicule the taste she could not feel. Her satirical discourse was, however, interrupted by the entrance of Montoni, and her countenance immediately assumed a mingled expression of fear and resentment, while he seated himself at the breakfast table, as if unconscious of there being any person but himself in the room. Emily, as she observed him in silence, saw that his countenance was darker and sterner than usual. Oh, could I know, said she to herself, what passes in that mind? Could I know the thoughts that are known there? I should no longer be condemned to this torturing suspense. Their breakfast passed in silence, till Emily ventured to request that another apartment might be allotted to her, and related the circumstance which made her wish it. I have no time to attend to these idle whims, said Montoni. That chamber was prepared for you, and you must rest contented with it. It is not probable that any person would take the trouble of going to that remote staircase for the purpose of fastening a door. If it was not fastened when you entered the chamber, the wind, perhaps, shook the door and made the bolt slide. 
but I know not why I should undertake to account for so trifling an occurrence. This explanation was by no means satisfactory to Emily, who had observed that the bolts were rusted, and consequently could not be thus easily moved, but she forbore to say so, and repeated her request. If you will not release yourself from the slavery of these fears, said Montoni sternly, at least forbear to torment others by the mention of them. Conquer such whims, and endeavor to strengthen your mind. No existence is more contemptible than that which is embittered by fear. As he said this, his eye glanced upon Madame Montoni, who colored highly, was still silent. Emily, wounded and disappointed, thought her fears were, in this instance, too reasonable to deserve ridicule. But perceiving that, however, they might oppress her, she must endure them, she tried to withdraw her attention from the subject. Carlo soon after entered with some fruit. Your Excellenza is tired after your long ramble, said he, as he set the fruit upon the table. But you have more to see after breakfast. There is a place in the vaulted passage leading to... Montoni frowned upon him and waved his hand for him to leave the room. Carlo stopped, looked down, and then added, as he advanced to the breakfast table and took up the basket of fruit, I made bold, Your Excellency, to bring some cherries here for my honored lady and my young mistress. Will your ladyship taste them, madam? said Carlo, presenting the basket. They are very fine ones, though I gathered them myself, and from an old tree that catches all the south sun. They are as big as plums, Your Ladyship. Very well, old Carlo, said Madame Montoni. I am obliged to you, and the young signora, too. She may like some of them rejoined Carlo, turning with the basket to Emily. It will do me good to see her eat some. Thank you, Carlo, said Emily, taking some cherries and smiling kindly. Come, come, said Montoni impatiently. Enough of this. Leave the room, but be in waiting. I shall want you presently. Carlo obeyed, and Montoni, soon after, went out to examine further into the state of the castle, while Emily remained with her aunt, patiently enduring her ill-humour, and endeavouring with much sweetness to soothe her affliction, instead of resenting its effect. When Madame Mattoni retired to her dressing-room, Emily endeavoured to amuse herself by a view of the castle. Through a folding door she passed from the great hall to the ramparts, which extended along the brow of the precipice, round three sides of the edifice. The fourth was guarded by the high walls of the courts, and by the gateway through which she had passed on the preceding evening. The grandeur of the broad ramparts and the chaining scenery they overlooked excited her high admiration, for the extent of the terraces allowed the features of the country to be seen in such various points of view that they appeared to form new landscapes. She often paused to examine the Gothic magnificence of Udolpho, its proud irregularity, its lofty towers and battlements, its high-arched casements, and its slender watch-towers, perched upon the corners of turrets. Then she would lean on the wall of the terrace, and, shuddering, measure with her eye the precipice below, till the dark summits of the woods arrested it. Wherever she turned appeared mountain-tops, forests of pine and narrow glens, 
opening among the Apennines and retiring from the sight into inaccessible regions. While she thus leaned, Montoni, followed by two men, appeared, ascending a winding path cut in the rock below. He stopped upon a cliff, and pointing to the ramparts, turned to his followers, and talked with much eagerness of gesticulation. Emily perceived that one of these men was Carlo. The other was in the dress of a peasant, and he alone seemed to be receiving the directions of Montoni. She withdrew from the walls and pursued her walk till she heard at a distance the sound of carriage wheels, and then the loud bell of the portal, when it instantly occurred to her that Count Morano was arrived. As she hastily passed the folding doors from the terrace towards her own apartment, several persons entered the hall by an opposite door. She saw them at the extremities of the arcades, and immediately retreated, but the agitation of her spirits and the extent and duskiness of the hall had prevented her from distinguishing the persons of the strangers. Her fears, however, had but one object, and they had called up that object to her fancy. She believed that she had seen Count Morano. When she thought that they had passed the hall, she ventured again to the door and proceeded unobserved to her room, where she remained, agitated with apprehensions, and listening to every distant sound. At length, hearing voices on the rampart, she hastened to her window and observed Montoni, with Signor Cavigni, walking below, conversing earnestly, and often stopping and turning towards each other, at which time their discourse seemed to be uncommonly interesting. Of the several persons who had appeared in the hall, here was Cavigni alone, but Emily's alarm was soon heightened by the steps of someone in the corridor, who, she apprehended, brought a message from the Count. In the next moment, Annette appeared. Ah, mademoiselle, said she, here is the Signor Cavigni arrived. I am sure I rejoice to see a Christian person in this place. And then he is so good-natured, too, he always takes so much notice of me. And here is also Signor Verezzi. And who do you think besides, mademoiselle? I cannot guess, Annette. Tell me quickly. Nay, ma'am, do guess once. Well, then, said Emily, with assumed composure, it is Count Morano, I suppose. Holy Virgin, cried Annette. Are you ill, mademoiselle? Are you going to faint? Let me get some water. Emily sunk into a chair. Stay, Annette, she said feebly. Do not leave me. I shall soon be better. Open the casement. The Count, you say, he has come then? Who, I? The Count? No, mademoiselle. I did not say so. He has not come then? said Emily eagerly. No, mademoiselle. Are you sure of it? Lord bless me, said Annette. You recover very suddenly, ma'am. Why, I thought you were dying just now. But the Count, are you sure has not come? Oh, yes, quite sure of that, mademoiselle. Why, I was looking out through the grate in the north turret, when the carriage drove into the courtyard, and I never expected to see such a goodly sight in this dismal old castle. But here are masters and servants, too, enough to make the place ring again. Oh, I was ready to leap through the rusty old bars for joy. Oh, who would ever have thought of seeing a Christian face in this huge, dreary house? I could have kissed the very horses that brought them. 
Well, Annette, well, I am better now. Yes, mademoiselle, I see you are. Oh, all the servants will lead merry lives here now. We shall have singing and dancing in the little hall, for the signor cannot hear us there, and droll stories. Ludovico's come, ma'am. Yes, there is Ludovico come with them. You remember Ludovico, ma'am? A tall, handsome young man, Signor Cavigny's lackey, who always wears his cloak with such a grace, thrown round his left arm, and his hat set on so smartly, all on one side, and— No, said Emily, who was wearied by her loquacity. What, mademoiselle, don't you remember Ludovico, who rode the Cavaliero's gondola at the last regatta and won the prize? And you used to sing such sweet verses about Orlando's, and about the black amours, too. And Charlie, Charlie, Mange, yes, that was the name, all under my lattice in the west portico, on the moonlit nights at Venice. Oh, I have listened to him. I fear to thy peril, my good Annette, said Emily, for it seems his verses have stolen thy heart. But let me advise you. If it is so, keep the secret. Never let him know it. Oh, mademoiselle, how can one keep such a secret as that? Well, Annette, I am so much better now that you may leave me. Oh, but, mademoiselle, I forgot to ask, how did you sleep in this dreary old chamber last night? As well as usual. Did you hear no noises? None. Nor see anything? Nothing. Well, that is surprising. Not in the least. And now tell me why you ask these questions. Oh, mademoiselle, I would not tell you for the world, nor all I have heard about this chamber either. It would frighten you so. If that is all, you have frightened me already, and may therefore tell me what you know without hurting your conscience. Oh, Lord, they say the room is haunted, and has been so these many years. It is by a ghost, then, who can draw bolts, said Emily, endeavouring to laugh away her apprehensions. For I left the door open last night, and found it fastened this morning. Annette turned pale, and said not a word. Do you know whether any of the servants fastened this door in the morning before I rose? No, ma'am, that I will be bound they did not. But I don't know. Shall I go and ask, mademoiselle? said Annette, moving hastily towards the corridor. Stay, Annette, I have another question to ask. Tell me what you have heard concerning this room, and whither that staircase leads. I will go and ask it all directly, ma'am, besides. I am sure my lady wants me. I cannot stay now, indeed, ma'am. She hurried from the room without waiting Emily's reply, whose heart, lightened by the certainty that Morano was not arrived, allowed her to smile at the superstitious terror which had seized on Annette, for though she sometimes felt its influence herself, she could smile at it, when apparent in other persons. Montoni, having refused Emily another chamber, she determined to bear with patience the evil she could not remove, and in order to make the room as comfortable as possible, unpacked her books. Her sweet delight in happier days, and her soothing resource in the hours of moderate sorrow. But there were hours when even these failed of their effect, when the genius, the taste, the enthusiasm of the sublimest writers were felt no longer. Her little library being arranged on the high chest, part of the furniture of the room, she took out her drawing utensils, 
and was tranquil enough to be pleased with the thought of sketching the sublime scenes beheld from her windows but she suddenly checked this pleasure remembering how often she had soothed herself by the intention of obtaining amusement of this kind and had been prevented by some new circumstance of misfortune how can i suffer myself to be deluded by hope said she and because count morano is not yet arrived feel a momentary happiness alas what is it to me whether he is here to-day or to-morrow if he comes at all and that he will come it were weakness to doubt to withdraw her thoughts however from the subject of her misfortunes she attempted to read but her attention wandered from the page and at length she threw aside the book and determined to explore the adjoining chambers of the castle her imagination was pleased with the view of ancient grandeur and an emotion of melancholy awe awakened all its powers as she walked through rooms obscure and desolate where no footsteps had passed probably for many years and remembered the strange history of the former possessor of the edifice this brought to her recollection the veiled picture which had attracted her curiosity on the preceding night, and she resolved to examine it. As she passed through the chambers that led to this, she found herself somewhat agitated. Its connection with the late lady of the castle, and the conversation with Annette, together with the circumstance of the veil, throwing a mystery over the subject that excited a faint degree of terror. But a terror of this nature, as it occupies and expands the mind, and elevates it to high expectation, is purely sublime, and leads us, by a kind of fascination, to seek even the object from which we appear to shrink. Emily passed on with faltering steps, and having paused a moment at the door, before she attempted to open it, she then hastily entered the chamber, and went towards the picture, which appeared to be enclosed in a frame of uncommon size, that hung in a dark part of the room. She paused again, and then, with a timid hand, lifted the veil, but instantly let it fall, perceiving that what it had concealed was no picture, and before she could leave the chamber she dropped senseless on the floor. When she recovered the recollection, the remembrance of what she had seen had nearly deprived her of it a second time. She had scarcely strength to remove from the room and regain her own, and, when arrived there, waited courage to remain alone. Horror occupied her mind and excluded for a time all sense of past and dread of future misfortune. She seated herself near the casement because from thence she heard voices, though distant on the terrace, and might see people pass, and these, trifling as they were, were reviving circumstances. When her spirits had recovered their tone, she considered whether she should mention what she had seen to Madame Montoni, and various important motives urged her to do so, among which the least was the hope of the relief which an overburdened mind finds in speaking of the subject of its interest. But she was aware of the terrible consequences which such a communication might lead to, and dreading the indiscretion of her aunt, at length endeavoured to arm herself with resolution to observe a profound silence on the subject. Montoni and Varese were soon after passed under the casement, speaking cheerfully, and their voices revived her. Presently the signors Bertolini and Cavigni joined the party on the terrace, and Emily, 
supposing that Madame Matoni was then alone, went to seek her. For the solitude of her chamber, and its proximity to that which she had received so severe a shock, again affected her spirit. She found her aunt in her dressing-room, preparing for dinner. Emily's pale and affrighted countenance alarmed even Madame Montoni, but she had sufficient strength of mind to be silent on the subject that still made her shudder, and which was ready to burst from her lips. In her aunt's apartment she remained till they both descended to dinner. There she met the gentleman lately arrived, who had a kind of busy seriousness in their look, which was somewhat unusual with them, while their thoughts seemed too much occupied by some deep interest to suffer them to bestow much attention either on Emily or Madame Montoni. They spoke little, and Montoni less. Emily, as she now looked on them, shuddered. The horror of the chamber rushed on her mind. Sometimes the color faded from her cheeks, and she feared that illness should betray her emotions and compel her to leave the room, but the strength of her resolution remedied the weakness of her frame. She obliged herself to converse, and even tried to look cheerful. Montoni evidently labored under some vexation, such as would probably have agitated a weaker mind, or a more susceptible heart, but which appeared from the sternness of his countenance only to bend up his facilities to energy and fortitude. It was a comfortless and silent meal. The gloom of the castle seemed to have spread its contagion, even over the gay countenance of Cavigny. And with this gloom was mingled a fierceness such as she had seldom seen him indicate. Count Morano was not named, and what conversation there was turned chiefly upon the wars, which at that time agitated the Italian states, the strength of the Venetian armies, and the characters of their generals. After dinner, when the servants had withdrawn, Emily learned that the cavalier who had drawn upon himself the vengeance of Orsino had since died of his wounds, and that strict search was still making for his murderer. The intelligence seemed to disturb Montoni, who mused, and then inquired, where Orsino had concealed himself. His guests, who all except Cavigni were ignorant, that Montoni had himself assisted him to escape from Venice, replied that he had fled in the night with such precipitation and secrecy that his most intimate companions knew not whither. Montoni blamed himself for having asked the question, for a second thought convinced him that a man of Orsino's suspicious temper was not likely to trust any of the persons present with the knowledge of his asylum. He considered himself, however, as entitled to his utmost confidence and did not doubt that he should soon hear of him. Emily retired with Madame Montoni, soon after the cloth was withdrawn, and left the cavaliers to their secret counsels, but not before the significant frowns of Montoni had warned his wife to depart, who passed from the halls to the ramparts, and walked for some time in silence, which Emily did not interrupt, for her mind was also occupied by interests of its own. It required all her resolution to forbear communicating to Madame Montoni the terrible subject, which still thrilled her every nerve with horror. And sometimes she was on the point of doing so, merely to obtain the relief of a moment. But she knew how wholly she was in the power of Montoni, and, considering that the indiscretion of her aunt might prove fatal to both of them, she compelled herself to endure a present and an inferior evil 
rather than to tempt a future and a heavier one. A strange kind of presentiment frequently on this day occurred to her. It seemed as if her fate rested here, and was by some invisible means connected with this castle. Let me not accelerate it, she said to herself, for whatever I may be reserved, let me at least avoid self-reproach. As she looked on the massy walls of the edifice, her melancholy spirits represented it to be her prison, and she started as at a new suggestion when she considered how far distant she was from her native country, from her little peaceful home, and from her only friend. How remote was her hope of happiness, how feeble the expectation of again seeing him. Yet the idea of Valancourt and her confidence in his faithful love, yet hitherto been her only solace, and she struggled hard to retain them. A few tears of agony started to her eyes, which she turned aside to conceal. While she afterwards leaned on the wall of the rampart, some peasants, at a little distance, were seen examining a breach, before which lay a heap of stones, as if to repair it, and a rusty old cannon that appeared to have fallen from its station above. Madame Montoni stopped to speak to the men, and inquired what they were going to do. "'To repair their fortifications, your ladyship,' said one of them, a labour which she was somewhat surprised that Montoni should think necessary, particularly since he had never spoken of the castle as of a place at which he meant to reside for any considerable time. But she passed on towards the lofty arch that led from the south to the east rampart, and which adjoined the castle on one side, while on the other it supported a small watchtower that entirely commanded the deep valley below. As she approached this arch, she saw, beyond it, winding along the woody descent of a distant mountain, a long troop of horse and foot, whom she knew to be soldiers, only by the glitter of their pikes and other arms, for the distance did not allow her to discover the color of their liveries. As she gazed, the vanguard issued from the woods into the valley, but the train still continued to pour over the remote summit of the mountain in endless succession, while in front the military uniform became distinguishable, and the commanders, riding first and seeming by their gestures, to direct the march of those that followed at length approached very near to the castle. Such a spectacle in these solitary regions both surprised and alarmed up Madame Montoni, and she hastened towards some peasants, who were employed in raising bastions before the south rampart, where the rock was less abrupt than elsewhere. These men could give no satisfactory answers to her inquiries, but being roused by them, gazed in stupid astonishment upon the long cavalcade. Madame Montoni, then thinking it necessary to communicate further the object of her alarm, sent Emily to say that she wished to speak to Montoni, and Aaron, her niece, did not approve, for she dreaded his frowns, which she knew this message would provoke, but she obeyed in silence. As she drew near the apartment in which he sat with his guests, she heard them in earnest and loud dispute, and she passed a moment, trembling at the displeasure which her sudden interruption would occasion. In the next, their voices sunk altogether. She then ventured to open the door, and while Montoni turned hastily and looked at her, without speaking, she delivered her message. 
Tell Madame Montoni I am engaged, said he. End of Volume 2, Chapter 6, Part 1 of 3